As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello there, I'm Nurse Mo, and this is The Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. This is a topic today that I am really excited about. I feel like I say that all the time, but usually I am pretty jazzed about the stuff that I'm sharing with you, because this is one of those things that I kind of have my own nervousness and fear about experiencing or coming across in the clinical setting. And anytime I'm nervous about something or feel less than confident about a particular topic, it really helps me to dive into it and really understand it. So that's what we're going to be going through today so that you can feel more confident about malignant hyperthermia. Before we dive into this really interesting topic, let's take a quick minute for the listener shout out, which goes out to Sarah. And Sarah says, I'm heading to nursing school and have been doing prerequisite courses and listening to a couple of episodes each week while commuting or walking. Nurse Mo is like having a cool aunt with ICU nursing experience, always ready to help you learn. She is great at explaining things in a simple, straightforward, and memorable way, from disease processes to medications to key professional communication skills for bedside nurses. I already feel more confident about this career change thanks to her podcasts and and website. So Sarah, just right back at you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and sharing your experience with it. And I'm happy to be your cool aunt. Okay, let's dive into our episode for today, which again is about malignant hyperthermia. So malignant hyperthermia is a hypermetabolic crisis that, if left untreated, is almost most certainly fatal, very high percentage of mortality with malignant hyperthermia. It occurs in individuals with a specific genetic condition when they are exposed to certain anesthetic gases or the medication succinylcholine. So let's talk about malignant hyperthermia pathophysiology. So when these susceptible patients, and we'll talk about who those are in just a bit, when these susceptible patients are exposed to triggering agents, and again, that was certain anesthetic gases or succinylcholine, what happens is calcium builds up. It accumulates in the myoplasm of skeletal muscle cells, and the accumulation of calcium causes sustained muscle contractions. And in order to maintain this sustained muscle contraction, the cells must utilize both aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. And so the result is ATP depletion, oxygen depletion, carbon dioxide production, and the development of acidosis. And this pathological process is responsible for the earlier signs of malignant hyperthermia, which are tachycardia, hypercapnia, 
and muscle rigidity. And this can vary from patient to patient, but that's kind of that classic triad of early signs, tachycardia, hypercapnia or elevated CO2 levels, and muscle rigidity. So once the energy stores are depleted, the muscle cells start to break down, basically rhabdomyolysis. And when they do this, they release their cellular contents, which guess what's in the cell? Potassium and myoglobin. So they release potassium and myoglobin into the bloodstream. And this results in hyperkalemia and myoglobinuria. So Hyperkalemia, as you know, can lead to dangerous cardiac arrhythmias, and myoglobinuria damages the kidneys, leading to acute renal failure. So while in this hypermetabolic state, the body is generating more and more heat than it is able to dissipate, and this leads to hyperthermia, which can occur early or later as the condition progresses. Studies show that in some cases, body temperature can increase by as much as 1 to 2 degrees Celsius every 5 minutes. Organ dysfunction sets in around temperatures of 41.5 degrees Celsius, which is about 106.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Additionally, hyperthermia leads to DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, which causes widespread coagulopathy and ultimately hemorrhage. If the patient gets to this point, the outcome is dire and the patient basically will not survive. If you want to learn more about DIC, make sure you go back and listen to episode 173. So let's review the key components of the pathophysiology. There was a lot there. So here are the key bits. An influx of calcium causes sustained muscle contraction. Muscle cells must use anaerobic metabolism to maintain that contraction, which leads to acidosis. Muscle cells deplete ATP, which is their energy source, and die, releasing potassium and myoglobin into the bloodstream. The increased oxygen demand of the muscles and increased buildup of CO2 causes tachycardia. Hyperkalemia leads to cardiac arrhythmias. Myoglobin damages the kidneys, leading to acute renal failure, and the hypermetabolic state causes body temperature to increase, which leads to widespread organ dysfunction and DIC. Now, earlier I mentioned the mortality rate. It has a mortality rate of 4 to 10% even with treatment. Without treatment, mortality rates have been reported to be around 70%. So let's talk about who is most at risk for being malignant hyperthermia susceptible. So individuals with the genetic mutation that allows too much calcium to flow into skeletal muscle cells is generally who we're talking about. This is an autosomal dominant disorder, meaning it can be passed on to children if only one parent has the genetic mutation. Each child of a parent with Malignant hyperthermia susceptibility, or MHS, has a 50% chance of inheriting the disorder. Anyone with a blood relative who has MHS should be considered at very, very high risk. Other individuals at risk of experiencing malignant hyperthermia include those with a history of unexplained rhabdomyolysis, muscular dystrophy, 
myotonia, which is impaired muscle relaxation, and rare muscular diseases, including central core disease and King-Denborough syndrome. So now that you have some background information on malignant hyperthermia, let's dive into the specifics using the straight-A nursing latte method. The first letter in the latte method is L, and that is for look. Basically, how does the patient look? What are their signs and symptoms with malignant hyperthermia? So while under the effects of anesthesia, either during surgery or in that immediate post-op period, the patient's obviously not going to be able to communicate that something is wrong. So it's up to you and the other members of the healthcare team, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, to notice when something unexpected is happening with the patient. Again, those earlier signs include tachycardia, increased end tidal CO2, and muscle rigidity. Now, while tachycardia and increased end tidal CO2 will be immediately displayed on monitoring equipment, muscle rigidity may be difficult to notice while a patient is under the effects of anesthesia. So one clue could be the surgeon asking the anesthesiologist for additional muscle relaxants, which could be an indicator that rigidity has set in. Another clue is an inability to open the jaw due to rigidity of the masseter muscle, which can occur within 60 to 90 seconds of administering a triggering agent, especially succinylcholine. As the condition progresses, other key things to notice are tall peaked T waves and widening QRS, as well as cardiac arrhythmias due to hyperkalemia. An elevated body temperature, though this can vary. Flushed skin, sweating, and modeling, though modeling tends to be more common in children than in adults. Tachypnea, hypoxemia, and hypercapnia and tea or cola-colored urine due to that myoglobin in the urine and that rhabdomyolysis. So those are the key things that you might notice about a patient who has malignant hyperthermia reaction. The next letter in the latte method is A, that is for assess. How do you assess the patient? So symptom onset in malignant hyperthermia can vary from patient to patient. Symptoms may manifest as early as a few minutes up to several hours after exposure to the triggering agent. Some important things to assess include heart rate and rhythm. So tachycardia and arrhythmias can definitely occur. You also want to keep a very close eye on core body temperature. And then, of course, muscle tone. Rigidity can set in quickly, especially at that masseter muscle. You're also monitoring end tidal CO2. There's typically an abrupt increase in end tidal CO2 as one of those hallmark signs of malignant hyperthermia. So you're keeping an eye on their end tidal CO2 level. And you're also watching their urine output and their urine characteristics. With myoglobin in the urine and rhabdomyolysis, the urine will be dark in color and the kidneys will suffer injury leading to oliguria. And then prior to surgery, patients should be screened for a history of anesthesia complications in themselves and in blood relatives. So the next letter in the latte method is a T, and that is for tests. What tests will be conducted for a patient with malignant hyperthermia? So in a patient with suspected malignant hyperthermia, there's not really a specific test. 
Treatment is initiated based on a presumptive diagnosis and the patient's display of their symptoms, which are going to be that unexplained rise in end tidal CO2, tachycardia, muscle rigidity, hyperthermia, hyperkalemia, and acidosis. There are some lab tests that will be utilized in the evaluation of a patient who is experiencing malignant hyperthermia, and those are serum and urine myoglobin tests, and this will let us know if the patient is in rhabdomyolysis. We're also going to look at electrolytes, specifically potassium, which will be elevated as those muscle cells release their cellular contents. Remember, as the muscle cells die, they break apart, they release what's inside, and there's a lot of potassium inside the cell. Additionally, calcium levels may be low since calcium is being utilized in that skeletal muscle. So looking at hyperkalemia and possibly also hypocalcemia. We're also looking at creatine kinase, which will be elevated in rhabdomyolysis. CBC and coagulation tests will evaluate the patient for DIC and an arterial blood gas will show both respiratory and metabolic acidosis. Those both will eventually develop. Tests are also utilized to identify individuals with the genetic predisposition for malignant hyperthermia. These include genetic testing and muscle biopsy. Genetic testing is conducted via a blood draw, while a muscle biopsy test must be conducted at specialized testing centers. This test, called the caffeine halothane contracture test, exposes freshly biopsied muscle tissue to caffeine and halothane to see how strongly the muscle contracts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. So the next letter in the latte method is another T, and that is for treatments. So what treatments are provided for someone who's experiencing malignant hyperthermia? So when malignant hyperthermia is suspected, it's absolutely vital to get help immediately as many interventions will need to be implemented. And it's going to take more than just you to get all this done. A key component of this is calling the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the U.S. hotline, which was created to assist healthcare workers in the U.S. in the appropriate management of patients in crisis. Now, the only antidote for malignant hyperthermia is the medication dantrolene, which is a skeletal muscle relaxant that stops the sustained contraction and prevents the hypermetabolic processes associated with the condition. It works by binding to a specific receptor to inhibit the release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Note that dantrolene must be reconstituted in a very specific way, and this will depend on which formulation you are using. So the formulation dantrium comes in a 20 milligram vial, which is reconstituted with 
60 mils sterile water, while the formulation Ryanadex is a nano suspension that comes in a 250 milligram vial, which is reconstituted with 5 mils sterile water. Many hospitals use Ryanadex because the full dose reconstitutes much faster than Dantrium, basically about less than one minute as opposed to up to 20 minutes for Dantrium, so Ryanadex much faster. Additionally, Ryanadex only requires one vial per dose versus multiple vials. For example, a patient who weighs 80 kilograms would only need one vial of Ryanadex for a dose, but would require 10 vials of Dantrium. Now, the standard dose for Dantrolene is 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, as recommended by the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the U.S., so 2.5 milligrams per kilogram. And both formulations, again, are reconstituted with sterile water. You can also shake the vial vigorously, which is recommended to help the medication reconstitute more quickly, and the medication is given via IV push. Note that lower or higher doses may be used, so it's not always going to be 2.5 milligrams per kilogram. It might be lower. It might be higher. This can definitely vary. Dantrolene is administered until the patient displays a reduction in symptoms, so they will possibly get multiple doses. Some patients who are having severe rigidity may require doses greater than 10 milligrams per kilogram. There are a lot of other key interventions for malignant hyperthermia, so let's go through those now. One of those is immediate cessation of the triggering agent as applicable. So in some cases, malignant hyperthermia may be recognized during surgery, and in other cases, it becomes apparent in the post-operative period. If a patient goes into malignant hyperthermia during surgery, the anesthesiologist and surgeon will decide if surgery must continue. If it must continue, the anesthesiologist will switch to non-triggering agents for the remainder of the procedure. This could include propofol with an opioid, local anesthetics, barbiturates, and some muscle relaxants. Another key intervention is to cool the patient. They can get chilled IV fluids, ice packs at the groin, axilla, and necks. Even a cold saline lavage may be used if body cavities are open during surgery, and then cooling blankets may also be utilized. Cooling is really important because increased temperatures cause more cellular calcium to be released, which can exacerbate the condition and lead to more rigidity and poor perfusion. Without adequate perfusion, delivery of dantrolene to the tissues will be compromised. Patients are actively cooled when core temperature is above 39 degrees Celsius, and then cooling measures are discontinued when body temperature reaches 38 degrees Celsius. We don't want to make them too cold. We don't want to overshoot it. So we discontinue cooling when we reach 38 degrees. Another key intervention is oxygenation and ventilation support. This involves hyperventilating the patient with 100% FiO2 to flush out any volatile anesthetics and reduce end tidal CO2. Using activated charcoal filters in the ventilatory circuit helps absorb inhaled anesthetics, but these get saturated really quickly and are typically changed out every hour. It's also important to treat hyperkalemia as needed. 
Elevated potassium levels are typically treated with insulin plus glucose. Remember, insulin is the key that opens up the cell and glucose enters, but it brings potassium along with it, which lowers serum potassium levels. Other treatments for hyperkalemia are sodium bicarbonate and calcium chloride. Note that calcium is still used in malignant hyperthermia since it reduces cardiac excitability and helps reduce the risk for dangerous arrhythmias in the presence of hyperkalemia. Some patients will also need high doses of albuterol, which also shifts potassium into the cell. Another key treatment is to treat metabolic acidosis as needed. Some patients may benefit from sodium bicarbonate administration and hyperventilation as a way to increase pH. We're also going to treat cardiac arrhythmias as they come up, though the evidence shows that correction of acidosis, hyperkalemia, and hyperthermia reduces the incidence of arrhythmias. If necessary, arrhythmias show up. Following ACLS guidelines is what is recommended by the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the U.S. Note that the evidence does show that verapamil and diltiazem, which are calcium channel blockers, should be avoided since they can exacerbate hyperkalemia, hypotension, and myocardial depression when administered concurrently with dantrolene. We're also going to treat rhabdomyolysis, myoglobinuria, and oliguria as needed. This involves increasing urine output to a goal of 1 to 2 mils per kilogram per hour. Note that the formulation dantrium contains 3 grams of mannitol, which acts as an osmotic diuretic to help offset the large amount of fluid patients receive with this medication. Remember, when we reconstituted our vial of dantrium, it required 60 mils of water, and our patient who weighed 80 kilograms would need 10 vials for one dose. So they get a lot of water with the dantrium formulation, but then they've got mannitol in that, so it acts as a diuretic. Other strategies for increasing urine output and preventing acute kidney injury in rhabdomyolysis include IV fluids, and alkalinization of urine with sodium bicarbonate infusions. Patients who do suffer from acute renal failure may require dialysis. To learn more about rhabdomyolysis, then go and listen to episode 251, where I dive into it in much more detail. And then another key intervention that I haven't mentioned yet is to treat compartment syndrome as needed. So patients who develop rhabdomyolysis can also develop compartment syndrome, especially in the presence of DIC. And the treatment for this is a fasciotomy. You can learn more about compartment syndrome in episode 119. And of course, if the patient does go into DIC, we're going to treat the DIC as needed. Patients who go into DIC will require prompt treatment with platelets, FFP, and or cryoprecipitate. Again, you can learn all about DIC in episode 173. So that was a lot. Let's just go back and quickly recap those key treatments. So we have the medication antidote, which is dantrolene, and that's going to be either as dantrium, which gets reconstituted with a lot of water, or ryanodex, which gets reconstituted with just a little bit of water. We're also going to 
Obviously, stop any triggering agents if the malignant hyperthermia symptoms arise during surgery. We're going to cool the patient, provide oxygenation and ventilation support. We're going to give 100% FiO2 to flush out those volatile anesthetics and reduce entitled CO2. We're going to treat hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis as those come up. We'll also treat cardiac arrhythmias if those come up, but hopefully by addressing the acidosis, the hyperkalemia, and the hyperthermia, we reduce the risk of arrhythmias. We're also going to treat rhabdomyolysis, myoglobinuria, and oliguria by really trying to increase that urine output. If the patient experiences compartment syndrome, we'll address that with a fasciotomy if necessary and treat DIC. Hopefully, we don't get to that point because the patient's likely to have a very poor outcome. But if it does come up, we're going to treat that promptly and aggressively. Again, it is really vital that once the signs of malignant hyperthermia are recognized, that additional resources be utilized and prompt intervention initiated. The studies show that for every 30 minutes that pass, there is a 1.6 times increase for the development of a serious complication. And if you've ever been in a serious situation with a patient before where there's a lot going on, you know how fast 30 minutes can fly by. So in order to make it possible for healthcare workers to provide really prompt treatment for malignant hyperthermia, many hospitals stock an MH cart in operative areas. So these carts contain vital items such as dantrolene, sterile water so that they can reconstitute the dantrolene as well as the syringes necessary to do that, chilled 0.9% sodium chloride, sodium bicarbonate, dextrose and regular insulin, calcium chloride, possibly ACLS medications, though these might often just be housed in their own crash cart. There's also charcoal filters if the patient is still intubated and on the ventilator, and then various nursing supplies, including IV catheters in various sizes so you can get more IV access, pressure bag for the rapid administration of fluids, disposable cold packs, Foley catheter, preferably one with a temperature probe, plastic bags and buckets for ice, test strips for urine hemoglobin, ABG kits, and lab specimen vials. So if you work in an operative area, it's really good to know where this cart is located. All right, the next and final letter of the LATTE method is an E, and that stands for education, and it can also stand for evaluation. So how would you evaluate a patient with malignant hyperthermia? So we're going to be monitoring for a reduction in symptoms and normalization of body symptoms. So some goals of care could include normothermia, absence of muscle rigidity, a regular heart rate and rhythm, absence of hyperkalemia, normalized pH, adequate urine output, absence of myoglobin in the urine and no signs of bleeding or basically any other complication. Now, when we look at education, the most important education component for a patient with malignant hyperthermia susceptibility is that they must always share this information with any surgeon, any anesthesiologist, so that the proper anesthetic agents can be chosen. They should also wear a medical or ID so their condition is known in the case of an emergency. It's also important they know to share their susceptibility with their family since other relatives may be at risk. 
These individuals, in turn, should let their healthcare team know of their family history for malignant hyperthermia, as they will likely require testing prior to any surgical procedures. And there you have it. That is your somewhat quick overview of malignant hyperthermia. So if you are interested in working with postoperative patients or surgical patients, or you currently do, and you were nervous about this, thankfully, it's very rare. The screening we're doing now is so much better, but it could still happen. And it's really, really important to be aware of the signs and symptoms and what needs to be done in a very, very quick fashion. So I hope you will join me back here next week. We're going to be diving into the components of the basic metabolic panel. So I'll see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.